turn to 1 Kings chapter 19, if you would please. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse number 4. This is Elijah. How many know Elijah? Chapter 19 and verse 4, it says about Elijah, But he went himself a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested himself that he might die. Well, if he really wanted to die, he should just hang around. Jezebel would have granted his request. (laughs) He requested himself that he might die. He said, it is enough now. O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. I ask again, anybody here ever experienced discouragement? Anybody ever get frustrated that the Lord has not met your expectations? Anybody ever think that the Lord just doesn't move fast enough for you? Have you ever been disappointed in the Lord after you have made the decision to give everything to the Lord, your whole heart, your whole life, your whole soul, and you've really meant it, and you've really given yourself and given yourself, given yourself to the Lord, believing that He will honor and answer your prayer, and end up disappointed. Have you ever felt you've given your life to something, and after you've burnt all your bridges behind you, realize it's not what you expected it to be? And you suffer disappointment. Even mighty Elijah. In 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 10, as he's about to go, now he requested that God would take his life. Little did he know that God says, I really got some other plans for you. It's called a fiery chariot coming down from heaven. And you're going to be one of the handful of people on the face of this earth since the beginning of time that will never see physical death. You want me to take your life? <laughs> i got something better for you. And he says to Elisha, his, the one that he is mentoring, he says to Elisha, who had asked for a double portion, in 2 Kings 2.10, he says, you have said, or he said, you've asked for a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be so unto you. But if you don't see me, it will not be so unto you. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested himself that he might die. And he said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. Has there ever been a prophet like Elijah? Think and all, just let your mind go through the whole Old Testament, New Testament. Has there ever been a prophet 
like Elijah. He has a prominent place in the scripture. Along with Moses, he met Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. He was the embodiment of all the prophets, and even the Old Testament closes with an expectation that Elijah should return before the day of the Lord would come. You know the story of Elijah well. He was a thunderous preacher. His boldness was unmatched. He suddenly appears in the Bible without introduction from a place called Tish, which nobody this day has a clue where that village ever was. He appears without introduction upon the horizon of Israel. He makes a daring announcement to a weak-willed king named Ahab that the land would not see rain for years, but according to his word, and just as quickly, he's gone. How he got in there to make an announcement, I don't know. And how he got out of there alive, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say, but he suddenly appears out of nowhere, and just as quickly, he's gone. He's outstanding in many ways. People's normal expectations of what a prophet would be could not describe him. He is so enamored and so full of the power of God, and he lives in the miraculous provision of God so normally that he defies description. He has this reputation when someone by the name of Obadiah meets him and he says to Obadiah, you tell King Ahab I'm here. Obadiah replies, what sin have I committed that you want me to make such an announcement to Ahab? Because you have this reputation that you're here and then the Spirit of the Lord just carries you away and who knows where you are. He has this reputation of, 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 of miraculous things. Nobody knows where to find him. The Spirit of the Lord will just take him from here to, to there. And, and his features were rugged. He is known as a hairy man who wore a leather belt. Miracles were the norm for him. He could be fed by ravens supernaturally. He would raise the dead. He can call fire out of heaven. Who is this man? You know, growing up, I remember this phrase, what's faster than a speeding bullet and, and leap big buildings? And if you know my generation, we go Superman. You know, it's not Superman, it's Elijah. Just this amazing person of God. The challenge before Elijah is tremendous. He was called to speak the word of the Lord to a deeply backslidden nation. The history of Israel is pathetic. And just before Elijah supernaturally just appears on the horizon, treason and murder were the history of the kings of Israel. Recently there had been a civil war in Israel and it was a battle between a man named Tibni and Omri. Omri prevailed in Tibni was killed, and Omni reigned for 12 years, and during his reign, he made a city called Samaria the capital of Israel. He had no regard for the Lord whatsoever, and the record in Scripture is Omri did worse than all the kings in front of him. 
He walked in the way of rebellious Jeroboam, the first king of Israel. He caused all Israel to sin, and the, the Bible says that he provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger. And when he died, his son Ahab, with whom everybody would be more familiar, Ahab took the throne, and he reigned for 22 years. He followed the lead of his father. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And your Bible says about Ahab that he even did more to provoke the Lord to anger than all the kings before him combined. Take all the kings in front of him and all the evil they did. And Ahab personally did more evil than all of them combined. The worst thing he did was get married to a woman named Jezebel, the daughter of someone named Eth Baal, king of the Zidonians. And with Jezebel came the worship of Baal. And what Ahab did is he built an altar and he built a house and a temple to Baal. If there was ever a time in a nation's history that it needed a move of God, it was then. Desperately need a move of God. I want you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 16. And I want you to notice something just prior to the appearance of Elijah. Elijah appears in chapter 17. But there's something that happened just before the appearance of Elijah. In 1 Kings 16 and verse number 34, it says, And in his days, that means in the days of Ahab, did Hiel the Bethelite build Jericho. He laid the foundation thereof in Abiram his firstborn, and set up the gates thereof in his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua the prophet. In order to understand that, go back to Joshua chapter 6 and verse number 26. And this is after the conquering of the city of Jericho. Joshua 6 and verse 26. After the city was destroyed, you remember the story of how the walls came tumbling down and the city was destroyed. In that destroyed state, Joshua pronounces a curse over anybody that would try to rebuild the city of Jericho. And you find that in Joshua 6 and verse 26. And Joshua adjured them at that time saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord that rises up and builds this city, Jericho. He shall lay the foundation thereof in his firstborn, and his youngest son shall he set up the gates of it. In other words, when he tries to do this, it will cost him the life of his firstborn, and it will cost him the life of his youngest son. And in the days of King Ahab, there is somebody who is going to defy this curse, defy this word of the Lord. And in 1 Kings 16.34, a man by the name of Hiel from Bethel attempted to do that. And sure enough, the curse of the Lord was fulfilled. 
And when he tried to build the walls thereon, his firstborn died, laid the foundation, and when he sets up the gates thereof, his youngest son dies. And I want you to see that the story of Elijah is introduced by that little historical reference about rebuilding the walls of Jericho. And there's a reason for that. Because in chapter 17, when Elijah goes before King Ahab, who's done more evil than all the kings of Israel combined before him, that Elijah goes with an announcement saying, the heavens will not open, it will not rain, until according to my word. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 11. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 16 and 17. A curse of the law. We have seen that the curse that Jericho, that Joshua had said over Jericho, had taken place. Now listen to the curse of the law in Deuteronomy 11, verses 16 and 17, when it says this. Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived, that you don't turn aside, you don't serve other gods, and you don't worship them. Or else the Lord's wrath will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens, and there will be no rain. And the land will not yield her fruit, lest you perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord gives you. If, as a nation, you go to serve other gods, then one of the curses of the law would be this, that the heavens will be shut up, there will be no rain, and there would be long-term famine happen. Now what Elijah does in 1 Kings 17 is he preaches to Ahab. You have just seen what happened to those who tried to defy the curse of Joshua. How much more if you defy the commands of the Lord? Since as a nation you've made a decision to build a temple to Baal, you have violated the covenant of the Lord and the covenant curse is that the heavens will be shut up, famine will become, and it's going to be that way until you hear from me again, and then he disappears. Wow. Talk about a showdown. If there was ever a need for revival, there's a need now for revival. There's ever a need for someone to stand up against the things going on in society. Perhaps that time is now. If ever there was a time a nation needs to be confronted with the righteousness of God, perhaps it is now. How many would say Elijah was pretty courageous? Pretty courageous. He had chosen to reveal himself single-handedly while all the other prophets of the Lord went into hiding. Jezebel was not just content to introduce Baalism into the life of the Israelites, but Jezebel was going to make sure it becomes the national religion. The worship of the Lord, Jehovah, had been banned and it is outlawed. In cruelty, Jezebel had murdered many of the prophets of the Lord. 
There was no more public testimony anywhere in the land. And if you're going to be loyal to the Lord God Jehovah, you're going to have to be very secretive about your faith. It is a horrendous time indeed. And in such circumstances, Elijah makes himself known. He believed that he was alone. He believed that he was the only one being faithful because anybody else was hiding. He zealously believed God. He was offended at God's honor being trampled upon. He stood to hear the word of the Lord and he had the promises of God on his side. He believed that me and the Lord, just the two of us, are a majority. Amen. Me and the Lord, doesn't matter how many against us, we're a majority. If the Lord, if the Lord be for us, who can be against us? 10,000 would fall at our side, it says in the scripture. So he single-handedly stands for the Lord, and he single-handedly challenges Jezebel and all the prophets of Baal in the land. If there was ever a time for a move of God, it's now. And every nerve in his being is now dedicated to this cause of seeing the nation turned around by a mighty demonstration of the power of God. He's driven by zeal for the Lord. His faith is bold and he is reckless. He doesn't fear for his life. He daringly and dangerously delivers the word of the Lord to King Ahab. And just as quick, he's out of there. I don't know how he got out of there. The Bible doesn't say. But he's out and the Lord has him hiding by a brook named Cherith. How long will we wait for revival? Because he was at this brook one entire year. That's a long time to be alone. That's a long time to pray. That's a long time to be in hiding. But he's there for approximately one year, hiding. And he drinks from this brook every day, and he lives by miracles every day. Can you believe this? This is phenomenal. Twice a day. You know, if I was putting my order in for the Lord, I would say three times a day. But no, twice a day. He is fed supernaturally. Ravens. Where do they get that food? I got this sneaking hunch. I don't know. It's just a hunch. But I think he visited Jezebel's table where she was feeding all the prophets of Baal, where there was no lack of food there. That the ravens, ravens, unclean birds. Why didn't they eat it themselves? Ravens, take this food off of somebody's barbecue, off somebody's table, and supernaturally delivers it to Elijah the prophet, taking bread and meat to the man of God. Surely every time that happened, it bolstered Elijah's confidence that God was with him. I'm living by a miracle every day. God's on my side. Every day this miracle happens. And Elijah, I can just see, well, God is with me. 
I am in the will of God. God is with me. Look at his provision that is happening. I'm sure it inspired the hopes in his heart that his cause was for real. And But you know, you've got to wait for God to touch the consciousness of a nation. How long is it going to take a nation to bend its conscience before God? How long is that going to take? How long will it take the famine to make its mark upon the people of God? How long will it take people to reconcile with the Scriptures? How long will they consider this? And a whole year goes by. Elijah is living by a miracle. Can you just imagine? You know, three o'clock, the ravens will show up. I mean, just amazing. God is with the man, but the nation is suffering famine. And God has to allow time to let the famine make its mark on the consciousness of a backslidden nation. And a whole year goes by. And then after a year, because of the lack of rainfall, the brook dries up. But the famine has not yet had its impact on the nation. They're going to have to struggle longer with the consequences of their behavior as a nation. But the brook dries up. So God arranges another means of sustenance for the prophet. He's commanded to go to a place called Zarephath, which is in Zidon, which happens to be Jezebel's hometown. Can you imagine that one? Ahab will never think of looking for Elijah in Jezebel's hometown. There is a widow woman. God, are you not thinking something better? (laughs) A widow woman is his source of supply. And this widow woman is also tested in her faith because the famine has sorely (coughs) affected her. She only has a handful of meal, she has a little oil, and she is hoping to prepare her last meal for herself and her son. How hopeless can that situation look like to the natural eye? But as expected, uh, she expected to die of starvation. But the God of Israel made a promise to a heathen woman in Jezebel's hometown that if you would care for Elijah you and your son would not suffer starvation. She obeyed and the Lord provided daily meal and oil that nourished Elijah, nourished herself and nourished her son. Again Elijah is living by miracles every day. If God be for us, who can be against us? Another whole year. How long does it take for a nation to bend its conscience before God? Another whole year would go by and the widow's son falls ill and dies. No problem. Elijah serves a God of miracles. And amazingly, Elijah takes the lifeless body of this son, lays himself upon him on his own bed, and he calls out to God. He stretches upon himself, upon the child three times. He cries out for his life. And then one of the most supernatural miracles in the Bible happens is that God raises somebody from the dead. When the widow woman sees that, 
she herself is convinced even further that Elijah indeed is not just a prophet, but he is the prophet of the true God. That he did speak the word of the Lord. And Elijah's faith remains unshaken, and this miracle could only serve to bolster the confidence that God is with him. And yes, I might be outnumbered 10,000 to 1 when it comes to prophets. But with me, if God is with me, I'm a majority. And he's believing God. Another whole year and a half would go by. And now we're talking a total of three and a half years. How long will it take a nation to bend its conscience before the Word of God? How long will it take? In this three and a half years, Elijah has experienced at least one miracle every day. Every day. If it's not ravens, it's meal and oil being multiplied. And God throws in a raising of the dead in the middle of it. Amazing. Every day the power of God was manifested. The miraculous provision was continuing. Every day Baalism would be looking more shabby to the people. All the time. Baalism was losing strength. Baalism had, was powerless to stop the famine. And every day, this word of the Lord would be weighing on the conscience of the nation. It's not going to rain till I say so. And every day, the nation has to grapple with this. Every day, the prophetic word of Elijah is going to be weighed by the starving population. When is Elijah going to appear? To reverse this curse. Because he said it would not rain again. Until he says so. There is a showdown coming. Well, what's the attitude of the king and queen? Jezebel is furious. Rather than yield to the word of the Lord. Jezebel instead orders the execution. Of every prophet of the Lord she could ever find. In Israel. Ahab, King Ahab is beside himself. You can read in 1 Kings 18, verse 10, but Ahab even sent ambassadors to every country and went on a worldwide manhunt for Elijah. And he threatened every nation if you're hiding Elijah, I'm going to war against you. This is, I mean, it's a worldwide manhunt for Elijah. And he made every country swear an oath that they weren't keeping Elijah in them. After three and a half years of devastating famine, the word of the Lord now came back to the faithful prophet. Three and a half years of waiting on God. Three and a half years of prayer. Three and a half years of miracle. Three and a half years looking to the day when the power is going to fall and revival comes and the nation is changed. He had lived for this. Three and a half years. And now the long-awaited moment had finally come. The climax of years of intensive prayer, intensive faith. He's governed by zealousness for the cause of the Lord. And the moment has long last arrived. It is now a fixed thing in the, in the, in the conscience of the nation that Baal is impotent. 
can't deal with this. Baal has proved himself impotent, but Elijah has proved God with a miracle every day for the last three and a half years. It is time for the challenge. And so with passionate expectation, he makes himself known. He finds this guy named Obadiah who secretly fears the Lord, but he's in secret about it. And he secretly has been hiding the prophets of the Lord because Jezebel wants to keep them. And Obadiah's life is in danger. At any moment, Jezebel finds out about his heart and his allegiance. He's a goner. And Ahab appears to this man who's hunting for pasture for the king's horses and mules somewhere, anywhere in the nation. And Obadiah says, what sin have I committed that you're sending me with such a message to Ahab? Because I'll tell Ahab you're here, and by the time Ahab gets here, the Spirit of the Lord will just caught you up and you're somewhere else. And Elijah says, no, it's time for the nation to make its decision. It's time for the nation to make its decision. And so there's a summons to confront Ahab. And after three and a half years, Ahab and Elijah face one another. And Ahab says, are you the one that's troubling Israel? Elijah says, not me, king. You the problem. You're the one who's troubling Israel. Elijah definitely had the upper hand because he had daily witnessed the faithfulness and the demonstration of the power of God. Ahab had nothing but defeat for his alliance with Baal. So Elijah quickly laid the blame where it belonged and with authority he demanded a showdown on Mount Carmel. All of Israel was going to witness a contest between the lone prophet of God against 450 prophets of Baal plus another 400 prophets that ate at Jezebel's table, 850 to 1. But this is the moment. Elijah's pumped. He's ready. He, is, he, could, he can taste the victory. He's ready for the contest. Greatly outnumbered, he's going to appeal to the consciousness of the nation. And he makes a demand of the nation. Who is the Lord? Is it God or is it Baal? If the Lord is God, serve Him. If Baal is God, then serve Him. But there's going to be a showdown here. How long will you halt between two opinions? How long are you going to be crippled? It's time to decide. And he lays down the, the rules for the contest. And here it is. Both sides are going to make an altar. And whoever answers by fire will be the Lord God. What could do the prophets of Baal do but accept the challenge in the eyes of the nation? They couldn't back out. The prophets of Baal were the first ones to make their sacrifice. They started in the morning. They were not allowed to put any fire under it because the fire has to fall from heaven. They prepared their bullock and they began to call on the name of Baal from morning to noon. But the Bible says there was no answer. By noontime, Elijah, quite bold in his absolute and total victory, he begins to mock the worshippers of Baal. Listen to what he says. Cry a little louder. Maybe he's deaf. (laughs) Maybe he's out walking. Now, King James Bible says, maybe he is pursuing. And you might say, what does that mean? 
That is a very polite way of saying the toilet. Maybe he's busy in the toilet. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he needs to be wakened up. And this causes the frustrated prophets into a deeper frenzy. They're leaping on the altar. And now they're trying to get Baal's attention. They start cutting themselves and they're bleeding to get Baal's attention. And the blood is gushing out and they carry on with pleading and they prophesy in the name of Baal until the time of the evening sacrifice. But there is no answer from Baal. It is well proved that he is impotent, he cannot answer, and he has no power. And he let them go for hours and hours and hours demonstrating the impotence of the God that they served. What about Jehovah? What's he like? Could he answer by fire? And so he teaches the nation a lesson. The first thing he does is he repairs the altar of the Lord. There's a lesson here. The first thing he does is he repairs the altar of the Lord that had been broken down. He builds it with 12 stones to remind the nation of the covenant of the Lord with the 12 sons of Jacob. And just to really demonstrate the awesome and overwhelming, over-the-top ability of God, he soaks the sacrifice with precious water. Now, water is scarce. It's a time of famine. And he takes 12 barrels of it and drenches, making it impossible for this thing to light. Not only that, he builds, digs a large trench around that stone altar so it could be filled with the water that runs down from the sacrifice. He's going to prove that not only is Baal impotent, but the Lord God has got power over the top. That he can do exceeding, abundantly above all that we could ask or think. He's going to prove that overwhelmingly that there is no God except the mighty God of Israel. It's not a problem to waste this water because he's about to answer with a rainfall that it hasn't seen in years. Having finished these preparations about the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah makes a prayer so everybody could hear it. He appeals to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to prove that he indeed is the God in Israel. And to prove that he, Elijah, was his servant who had obeyed his command. He anticipated this mighty demonstration of the power of God. And he wants this to cause the wayward nation to turn their hearts back to God again. The long anticipated moment has now arrived. He has cried out in faith. He has stood on his own for three and a half years. He has been loyal and he has been faithful. And in a moment, instantly, your Bible says, the fire fell. Hallelujah. The fire fell. It fell in such an overwhelming manner that it thoroughly consumed the soak sacrifice, all the drenched wood, not only that, it consumed the stone altar. Not only that, but it was so hot that all the water in the trench was gone. It just licked it all up. It totally evaporated. At last, there's victory. 
He had proved that Baal was false. He had proved that the Lord, He is God. Desire of three and a half years of patient waiting had now been achieved. Elijah had single-handedly taken on the entire of Baalism, and he won victory indeed. You should have been there to see it. Man, you should have been there. Because pandemonium broke out. I mean, the multitude fell on their faces. The multitude cried out, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And they bowed to the ground. And Elijah's pumped. I mean, immediately he carries out the death sentence. Deuteronomy 13.5 said, These prophets of Baal need to be executed. And there was a death sentence immediately carried out. And the crowd captured all the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. They were taken to the brook of Kishon where their blood was mixed with the water. Ahab had lost. Elijah is in control. Elijah orders Ahab to get up, eat, and drink because there is the sound of the abundance of rain. Elijah entered into the kind of intensive prayer for which he was known. Because James refers to this in James 5, 16-18, that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So James called Elijah a righteous man. And you know the story how he prayed once. No, he prayed twice. No, he prayed three times. No, he prayed four. No, he prayed five. No, he prayed six. No, he prayed seven times. He knows that you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and you pray. And it looks like nothing is happening, and you get discouraged, but you keep on praying, and you keep on praying, and you keep on praying. And then finally, the seventh time, there's a cloud the size of a man's hand, and he says, it's enough. You better hurry up and get down off this mountain, Ahab, because the heavens are going to open up. He needed to hurry. If you don't get down quick, Ahab, you're not getting off this mountain. And quickly the sky became black with wind-blown clouds. And finally, according to the word of Elijah, a great rain fell. And now there's this contest between Elijah and the horse and the chariots of Ahab. And I can just imagine Ahab's are getting down this mountain as fast as he can. But your Bible says Elijah outran him. Wow. This is a miracle man. He's fast. He can outrun the horse and the chariot going down that mountain. He is pumped. What a high. What adrenaline must be there. The moment of victory has happened. Victory had been achieved. Or had it? Had victory been achieved after the demonstration of power? When Jezebel heard about this, she did not capitulate. The masses did not endorse Elijah. And there was no national follow-through after their great victory. There were plenty of prophets left in the country of Baal. Plenty of prophets of Baal left throughout the land. Wicked Jezebel was more incensed than ever. And he was all, she was all the more determined to have him killed. 
Now listen carefully. This demonstration of the power of God brought momentary, and I emphasize the word momentary, momentary awe. But it did nothing to encourage the people to face the enemy themselves. It didn't cause the people to make the necessary sacrifices. And this display of the power of God did not seem to change their hearts. And they still lived in fear of Jezebel. The anticipated moment for which every nerve in his body and in his soul had been focused for three and a half years had come and gone. And it did not produce the results he expected Israel, after the display of the power, was not converted. Have you ever been disappointed in God? The nation was not converted. The prophet was exhausted, living three and a half years on the edge of his nerves, believing and focusing and pouring himself out entirely. He's now exhausted, and his bold courage gave way to great despair. The one who had challenged 850 prophets of Baal now fled for his life. He goes for a day's journey into the wilderness and he sits under a juniper tree and in heartbroken anguish he cries out to God that God would you please take my life. This has ended in failure. I have burnt my bridges behind me. I have given myself solely. There is no plan B here. God, if you don't break through, I don't know what I'm going to do because I have given everything for this moment and I've given and I've given and I've given and I sacrificed and I believed and it's not happening. He's in heartbroken anguish. It all ended in failure. He and he only had stood for the honor of the Lord. If Elijah failed, folks, everything was lost. He was the last in a line of succession of people that cared for the promises of God. The hopes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all depended on the success of him turning this nation around. The visions and the dreams of men like Samuel and David would be left unfulfilled because there was none other to carry on. The hope of the nation was lost, and this mighty Elijah, who alone carried the weight of this great burden, had failed, and now he saw no purpose to continue on. All of his perseverance, all the faith, and all the miracles he had witnessed seemed to have done nothing to rescue the hope of the nation. The nation had not turned, and the prophet wants to part from life. He is disappointed, depressed, and disillusioned that God hadn't performed according to his expectations. Quite a story, isn't it? we got to get Elijah out of this depression, don't you think? We don't want to live here. We don't want to believe that we've given everything to God and then we start to question that God's not moving as fast as we hope He would move and the expectations of things that we believe for aren't producing the results. We've got to get ourselves out of this. Elijah had to learn many lessons. And often depression in ministry help happens because you project upon God expectations of your own making and not of His. 
He misconceived the purpose of his call and his mission. If he really wanted to die, he should have just hung around. Jezebel would have gladly have fulfilled his request. He misunderstood himself and he misunderstood what God was doing. Faulty perceptions can lead people into a downcast mood. Instead of death, as Elijah prayed for, God could say, Death, Elijah, wait till you see how you exit this world. Little do you know what I've got for you. Lovingly, what's going to happen is God, who has shared his power with the prophet, is now going to share his heart with the prophet. Let me say that again. God, who had shared his power, is now going to share his heart with the prophet. The first thing he allows the prophet to do, gives him instructions, is go to bed and get a good sleep. That's good advice. Go to bed and get a good sleep because you have pushed yourself mentally, emotionally, and physically beyond any human reasonableness. You need rest. You need time to not think. You need time to recoup. I've got some lessons for you, but I'm going to have to build up your physical, your mental, and your emotional strength in order for you to hear what I'm about to say. So go get some sleep. Elijah sleeps, and then an angel comes and ministers to him and wakes him up and provides nourishment for his body. Some miracle food, angel food cake, I guess, not sure what it was, uh, but some food, and he says, I want you to eat this. And you're going to need to be strengthened by this because you need to be prepared to hear the word of the Lord to you. And received angelic ministry because the physical journey and the emotional drain would be too much for the exhausted prophet. He goes for 40 days in the strength and the sustenance of that food. He has 40 days to wrestle with his thoughts. And God takes him on a journey to a mountain. The mountain is called Horeb, which is another name for a mountain called Sinai. It's the same place that Moses was at when God appeared to Moses. It was this magnificent Mount Sinai that God had led Elijah to teach him his heart. Puts him in a cave in a mountain and he asks a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? You've given yourself for years to my cause. You've entered into a depression. What are you doing here, Elijah? What do you think your purpose is, Elijah? And Elijah quickly responds with what's going on in his heart. I have been very jealous for the Lord of hosts. The children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, but I have been true. I'm the only one left, and my life is threatened. As far as I understand, Elijah says, I'm the end of the line, and it's all been for naught. Despite the slaughter of 850 prophets, Ahab's still on the throne, Jezebel is still on the throne, and there are plenty more prophets in the land of Baal who continue to seduce the nation. Having drawn that confession out from his servant, God begins some object lessons to Elijah. He stands upon the mountain before him. And here he's going to witness three times, three phenomenal demonstrations 
of the power of nature. First, there is a strong wind that batters the mountain. Great rocks are lifted up by this wind, hurled and smashed to pieces before the Lord. There is a display of power in all its fury. And then after that, there is a mighty earthquake, and the whole mountain shakes with the power of God. And after that, there is a fire that rages through the mountain, ravaging everything in its path. What the wind and the earthquake didn't destroy, the fire does. But you have to understand that God was not present in the wind. He was not present in the earthquake. And He was not present in the fire. Those are the same manifestations that Moses experienced on Mount Sinai as well. And God's not in the wind. And God's not in the earthquake. And God's not in the fire manifestations of the power of God to bring judgment. Listen carefully, because here's the word of the Lord. Manifestations of the power of God to bring judgment, but God's not into judgment. He will judge, but He'd rather have mercy. Are we catching this? This is important. And when God's not present in the wind, and He's not present in the earthquake, and He's not present in the fire, then the Bible says there came a still, small voice. And God is present in the still, small voice. Like Moses of old, God is calling again. Then the Lord asked Elijah a second time, What are you doing here? And Elijah gives the same reply. And the Lord says, I want you to go anoint three men. Haziel, who should be anointed the king of Syria. Jehu is to be anointed the king of Israel. And Elisha will be anointed to be prophet in your place. The struggle is going to continue after Elijah is gone. He has to appoint a successor. What's the significance that God is present in the still small voice, but not in the wind in the earthquake, and in the fire. Elijah has to go back. It was in the same place. Maybe it was even the same cave. I don't know. But the same place that Moses made a prayer. said, show me your glory. You remember the Lord put Moses in a cleft in the rock and passed by? He asked for a closer revelation of God's glory. And it says in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, as God passed by, there was a proclamation. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, children's children, to the third and fourth generation. And Moses learned, and Elijah's learning, that the heart of God is not judgment. The heart of God is mercy. Mercy. It's God's nature to save. He only judges in order that all things would work together for good. He brings judgment when it has to happen, but he's looking for a Rahab to save out of the midst of it. 
God is a God of love. He's a God of mercy. And he is a God of compassion. And he would rather give people space to repent than bring judgment upon them. Judgment is a strange work to God. It is the still, small voice that Elijah heard. What he heard there was the mercy of God. He's long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish. He's willing that all should come to repentance. Listen, if Jezebel would have repented, he would have saved her. We'd damn her, but God would have saved her. Are you hearing the heart of God? God will judge, but he'd rather extend mercy and mercy and mercy to give opportunity for people to repent. Even in the book of Revelation, there was a woman in chapter 2, verses 20 to 23, a woman by the name of Jezebel, and God says, I'm giving her space to repent. She's going for judgment, but I don't want her to be judged. I'd rather her repent. You see, Saul of Tarsus, Why didn't God wipe him off the face of the earth? Because he would rather see Saul saved than judged. He'd rather save his enemies than bring judgment on them. What a marvelous God we serve. And there's a lesson here that the demonstration of the power of God is needful. I am unashamedly Pentecostal. I believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that this country and this city and this nation and this world needs a demonstration of the power of God. There are sick people that need to be healed. There are people with, that are demonized that need to be deliverance. There are habits that need to be broken. We need the demonstration of the power of of God. We need, like Elijah, to see the fire fall. Yea and amen, and you can shout amen if you like it. We need to see the power of God. This nation needs to be confronted with a demonstration of the power of God. But, and this is the lesson that Elijah had to learn, the demonstration of the power of God doesn't necessarily touch people's hearts. You remember in Luke 16, Jesus said, even if somebody was raised from the dead, doesn't mean they're going to listen. It is love. Now here's the lesson. It is love that this world needs to experience. It is compassion. And it is mercy that this world needs to experience. The love of God will change hearts. Miracles, not necessarily so. It's the love of God, it's mercy that will change people's hearts. God has no desire to destroy. He'd rather save Jezebel, he'd rather save Ahab. Mercy will always rejoice against judgment. There was a period later in the life of Ahab when he did kind of humble himself before the Lord. And God said, see, look at that. He's humbling himself before me. And therefore the judgment, I'm going I'm to forestall it on his behalf. Boy, when people start to humble themselves before God, even Ahab, it gets God's attention big time. So Elijah has to go and he has to anoint 
uh, Haziel and Jehu and Elisha, who will be the wind and the earthquake and the fire. And these guys, these boys will see that judgment takes place. Yes, God will judge, but he'd rather give space to repentance. And because Elijah misunderstood what drives the heart of God, he misunderstood his own role in the nation. He misunderstood the expectations. And he has to be corrected. He was not alone as he thought. Because of him, there were 7,000 others that maybe they were in hiding, but they were taking inspiration from him. No, he had not been a failure. Because of his stand, God was working in the hearts of people throughout the land. The back of Baalism was severely broken, but God was still giving people time to repent. Soon enough, judgment would would happen. Yes, Elijah, but I want space to know my heart. Elijah would not remain on this earth to see the judgment take place. Ahab, in his foolishness, died upon the battlefield. However, when Elijah was translated into the heavens, Jezebel was still alive and still the power behind the throne. Her son Ahaziah was on the throne. Her son refused to call upon God. There were still plenty of prophets of Baal in the land when Elijah was taken. But none of this would have been possible if it had been for the brave and courageous faith of the lone prophet, zealous for the Lord of hosts. Then when he's about to pass on, he has his junior prophet Elisha with him. And Elisha says, I want a double portion. And you remember he gives them a lesson. If you see me when I'm gone, you'll have it. Why if you see me? Why is that necessary? Because what Elijah is seeing is saying is this. You have to be able to see into the other world. More than that, you need to see into the heart of God. You have to deliver yourself from the tendency to judge as things appear to you. You have to learn to discern from heaven's point of view. You have to learn to view situations from God's overall perspective. You have to learn that you don't walk by sight but you walk by faith. You have to learn that you've got to hear God's heart and you've got to hear God's purpose. Otherwise, you can enter, allow yourself to enter into the valley of discouragement too easily. See things from God's point of view. Discern the spirit. Judge nothing by outward appearance or before his time. Lose yourself in God's larger perspective and understand how God works in the hearts of men. Pierce the veil between that which is seen and that which is unseen. Distinguish between that which is temporal and that which is eternal. Learn the heart of God. The counsel of the Lord, I believe, is this. Three things and I'm finished. I'm hungry for revival, as we all are. But we cannot rush God's timetable. I wish we could, but we can't. How long does it take for the consciousness of a nation to bend before the Lord? 
We cannot rush revival. God has to prepare the hearts of the church, and he has to prepare the hearts of the unsaved as well. And God sets it all up in his timing. We cannot rush revival. I wish we could. But if you're trying to rush God, you end up disappointed. You can't rush. The second thing I believe the counsel of the Lord is this. I'm repeating myself here. But we need a mighty demonstration of Pentecostal power. We need a return to the book of Acts. We need to preach the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We need to exercise the gifts of the Spirit. We need a restoration of the power of Pentecost because people need to be confronted with the power of God. If you're sick in body, you don't need my sympathy, you need the power. If you're demon-possessed, you don't need my condolences, you need deliverance. If you're without provision, you need the power of God to provide. We need the demonstration of the power of God. But the third point is this. The demonstration of the power of God, though necessary, is not the whole story. It's not the whole story. We need to become love incarnate. We need to be people who understand the compassion of God, the heart of God, the love of God, the grace of God, the long-suffering of God, the gentleness of God of God. And it's my conviction that that's exactly the lesson that God is at this time desiring to impress upon the hearts of his people. We must be faithful in praying for this city, for this nation, and for revival. As we pray, we must be learning compassion and mercy and love. The power of God will cause people to know that He's real. The compassion and the love of God will win their hearts. And that is my conviction as to what the Lord is saying. Rise up. And continue to pray and continue to press and continue to allow the Lord to teach us about his nature as we wait on his time. Amen.